You are listening to Forging Employee Experience. I am Josh Green, joined here by Alexander Norin, who is just feeling good. Yeah, I mean, and it's no wonder, right? Uh, we have probably one of the greatest guests of all time here on the show today. So feeling great. <laughs> I know we great. have a bias to, to, to our guests, <laughs> but uh, we are extremely excited in the studio today for our guest on the show today. We have Howard J. Ross on the line. Howard, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, guys. I appreciate your uh, encouraging introduction. Yeah, I mean, we were, we're so excited about this one because we had the opportunity to meet Howard at the Work Human Conference back in March, and we were just so excited about some of the stuff that he was mentioning in our interviews, and we just had to get you on the podcast to kind of flesh out some of these ideas more and, and just pick your brain for, for uh, what you know and, and what you've been working on. Listeners, if you're not familiar with Howard yet, he is considered one of the world's seminal thought leaders on identifying and addressing unconscious bias. He authored the Washington Post bestseller, Everyday Bias, Identifying and Navigating Unconscious Judgments in Our Daily Lives, and his most recent book, which is Our Search for Belonging, How Our Needs to Connect is Tearing Us Apart. So lots to be said about our, our friend Howard. Is there anything else we should know about you? No, I think that, that, that's good for now. Let's jump right in. Awesome. So, so Howard, we, it seems that you have spent a lot of time thinking about this concept of belonging and unconscious bias and how that might make people feel like they don't belong. And, um, and so I would just love to get a foundation for where does your personal passion come from in regards to this subject? Well, I think, you know, we all, I think we all um, are driven by our own personal life experiences. In my case, it's not so much what happened to me, but really what happened in the generation before me, because I was born in January of 1951 um, to a Jewish family who had lost dozens of family members in the Holocaust. And, um, and we got very two, two really very important messages growing up. One was that terrible things can happen, and the other was that we we're responsible for doing something about it. So it sort of became our family business to participate in social justice work. My older sister became one of our nation's leading immigration lawyers for many years until she just retired a couple of years ago. My younger sister has worked with social justice organizations all over the world, including being Marion Wright Edelman's fundraiser at Children's Defense Fund for many years. And I started as a teacher and a school administrator working with very, um, with low-income communities, mostly African-American low-income community, um, and eventually uh, became interested in organizational change when I tripled the size of the school that I was uh, running in a year and found out that nothing to do about managing people worked anymore. So I had to go back and study uh, organizational <laughs> change and how, and how to create that kind of an organization. And one of the things that became apparent to me right from the beginning in all of this work um, was the, the human need to belong. I mean, you know, we, we know now because of the neurocognitive science research that when Maslow told us that belonging was actually the third step of his pyramid, that he was actually wrong, that, that belonging is our, probably the fundamental human need and the need to fit in, the need to go along with people around us, uh, dominates us in many ways, mostly unconsciously. Mm, yeah, and, and man, what, what a story and what a beginning uh, to, to start with. How, how does that translate to today's workforce? You know, a, a lot has changed um, from, you know, the times of World War II and, and some of the atrocities there. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people 
aren't necessarily fearing for their lives on a daily basis, but it seems they are fearing for their jobs or, or they are still looking for that sense of belonging. And so uh, what have you have yeah. found from a high level of, of, of what to do in today's world? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of factors that really, you know, it's almost like a nexus of things that, that creates this sort of giant, um, you know, this giant wave that we're dealing with right now. I think one is that there was a fundamental change over the last, you know, generation or two in the workforce. You know, when I came out of college, we were told, get a job and stay there for 20 or 30 years. You know, that's what you were supposed to do. And it was not at all uncommon for people to do that. That's really the big people lived their lives. So you found a good job and you basically stayed there and was something, you know, surprisingly happened. Um, now, of course, we know that um, the, what was called the new employee contract when it was introduced in the 80s or 90s, basically companies saying, we're not going to guarantee you anything. You know, we may, we may lay people off. We may reduce force. We may do any number of kinds of things. Um, and, and correspondingly, I think what we have is, is a couple of generations now of people who've grown up understanding that they can't count on loyalty from their employers and so they move around a lot more so we've got people coming in and out of organizations a lot faster than we used to it's i think young people coming out of college now if they're in an organization for more than three years begin to feel like the resume is looking stale and so that creates first an initial shift in the communities within organizations and that is that people are not around for as long they don't have the same kind of institutional memory they don't have the same kind of loyalty and connection to the organization they don't identify with it as strongly and so as a result of that, there's not a sense of a deep sense of belonging from that standpoint. And then the second big factor is the polarization that's going on outside of our organizations in our society. You know, I don't think it's a it's a stretch to say that you know we all know we're in almost a cold civil war right now, and and um, and the workplace is one of the few places where we have to work with people um, who are different from us. You know, in almost every other aspect of life, we self segregate. Uh, but at work, you're sitting next to somebody, your boss comes and says. You have to work with that person and get this project to me by next week. It doesn't matter if you're a Clinton supporter and they're a Trump supporter or vice versa. You know, you've got to work together. And so, so this incredible dissonance that we have outside of our businesses comes right into the businesses and create tension as well. And that and all of the other you know, social changes that we've seen have created workplace environments in which um, in order to get people engaged, we have to create more, much more consciously a sense that it's a place where they can belong. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, when you, when you summarize it like that, it looks pretty bleak. <laughs> um, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I, it's an old saying, I think my father used to say this to me years ago, used to say, you know, things need to get real before they get better. That's and right. I think that, you know, we don't do it. We don't do any service by falsely pretending like we don't have some serious concerns that we have to be dealing with right now. And that's a huge issue, right? Because I mean, there's a lot of folks in organizations, especially um, at the executive level, that um, facing these realities uh, complicates their job a lot, right? If oh, now, if now, if now all of a sudden you can't just be worried about whether or not X Y Z project gets done, but you also now have to worry about okay, well, what teams and personalities and biases or, or whatever the, the the human makeup of that team now we have to worry about that too like what happened to the good old days when you just said go right it's right well well you know alexander you know it, it's interesting because um this is where the unconscious mind comes into play you know you or i might sit here and say who cares whether that programmer or that you know marketing person or that you know whatever job you're talking about mm -hmm. um, voted for this person or that person who cares all i care about can they do their job well? 
That's what we say, right? Sure. But we also know that you know we can't help but be influenced by other things we know about that person. So if I know that person voted for somebody who I just simply loathe and can't stand and think that only crazy people would vote for that person or only racists would vote for that person or only you know, whatever would vote for that person, then those feelings I have about that generalized group then begins to affect that person I'm working with. So I trust what they, their input a little less. I, I want to spend less time with them because I'm not comfortable. So rather than working together as closely, I sort of do end arounds or rather than asking them for advice about something, I go to somebody else and leave them out of the loop. I mean, we could go on and on all the, you know, dozens of different ways that these attitudes might influence in conscious and unconscious ways that relationship. And, and the work that gets created from. And so, it, it, and it sounds like, and as, as with all things that are worthwhile, that it, it's, 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 a, it's a bit of a lift here to, to start making headway into, into making progress in, in, in addressing these issues in the workplace. But before I, before I ask the, the golden question that everyone wants to know of how do we do it, um, you, you, you spoke, you mentioned earlier that, you know, in conjunction with this being an issue, you talk about this, uh, the lifespan of an employee is, for better or for worse, just shorter uh, in this in the current marketplace. How do we get over this idea of, well, the person's not going to be here for very long anyway, so what's the point of investing this belongingness, this amount of effort to create a sense of belongingness? Well, I think, I, I think in fact, you know, you can see easily people do sometimes go to that mindset. In yeah. fact, in a lot of a lot of organizations, people end up being treated like they're just replaceable cogs. You know, you're only going to be here so long. I'm not going to invest in you. But actually, the more progressive organizations are realizing that the exact opposite is called for. If this person is only going to be with me for three years, four years let's say, yeah. then I got to get them up to speed fast. I need to invest in them early. I need to make sure that in the first two months they're in the business, I get them up to speed. I get them connected. I make sure that people know them and they know people, that they know the responsibility, that they get the on-the-job training that they need, because otherwise I'm, I'm never going to get the productivity out of them that justifies my hiring. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that is absolutely on point, right? Which is interesting too, because if you think about, well, then well, why, why would you, why would you not try to get people onboarded quickly and, and get them up to speed sooner? And it's, um, it's an interesting to think about how, you know, in some companies today still, and, and uh, definitely more the norm um, in the past, but this idea of, you know, the new guy's the new guy for a few years. Um, it's like, that's, yeah. that, that well, a lot of it has to do, I think, you know. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's it. I that's good. I was going to say a lot of it has to do with just the relative way that we look at time as human beings. I mean, look, it's vacation season, you know, it's, it's sort of the end of July here. So it's vacation season and people are going on vacations. And if you're on a one week vacation, you're going someplace cool. You're like planning before you even get there. What are we going to do Monday? What are we going to do Tuesday? What are we going to do Wednesday? Because, you know, I want to make sure to get in those cool things that I want to do. Right. But if you've got a three week vacation in the same location, if you're like me, you probably get there and spend the first couple of days just kind of chilling. And just kind of relaxing and take, and then you start saying, what do we do now? And oh, what do we want to do tomorrow? You know, there's just not as much of a press things done. And I think it's very similar. You know, if you've got a shorter amount of time, um, attention and consciousness about how you use that time becomes at higher value. Right. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a, a very interesting thought. And so as we, as we turn our, our discussion more towards uh, employees who are currently at work, you know, those, those employees who, think their resume is turning stale after three years, right? Uh, it, it seems like we've created a, an interesting dynamic for company culture in general, because now these employees have to worry about hiring and retaining 
top talent for a certain amount of time and and and, and that's seemingly harder and harder to do so I, i'm curious what you think the state of the union is as far as the employee experience at work and, and what can we do to engage quote unquote engage our employees well i think we start with the notion that that different circumstances call for different approaches and in a lot of cases um we're we're taking these these new circumstances and people coming in with new needs new agendas uh, but we're treating them the same way we always did so it, it's a you know, we have a particular way of doing things that, that's based on the past. You know, it's like the story, I'm sure, I'm sure you guys have heard this story, but maybe some of our listeners haven't, you know, about the guy who gets married, he wants to impress his wife that he can cook, so he does this baked ham dish that's been in his family for generations. And as he's preparing, the meal, he cuts a little off the front and a little off the back of the ham, and his wife says, why did you do it that way? And he says, well, that's the way my mother did it. So a couple of weeks later, um, the mother's visiting, and the wife, the wife says to the mother, I'm curious, how come when you do the ham dish, you cut off? front and a little off the back and the mother says that's when my grandmother did it and so finally she sees grandma a couple weeks after that says grandma how can you make the end this way and grandma says my pot was too small you know um you know and and this is the way things happen you know we do things because 25 years ago somebody did something and and, and i think this is particularly important when we look at this change in in the makeup of the workforce particularly the generational change in the makeup of the workforce we're designed our workforces are designed the cultures are designed to have people around for a while even now even after 20 or 30 years of this new approach even now people figure well you know we have sort of this plotting way and the, you know, particular ways that we do things that are not very flexible. And then you have this young person comes in who's ready to go on day one. You know, it's not like the old days where you came into an organization expected to wait around for six months before you got anything important to do. Young people are coming in now and they're saying, you know, I can do something here. And when you look at, you know, 20-somethings like, you know, Zuckerberg, or, you know, who, who, who started billion-dollar companies in their early 20s, you can kind of see where the influence comes from. So, so I think where that puts us as organizational leaders is in the need to, um, to, to challenge people a little bit more, to, to find faster ways to get people up to speed, to move people around more, to look for places to give people parallel influence. Because one of the things that has people leave is I've done a job for three years, there's not a lot of place to move up, so I go someplace else. But maybe... Um, one of the things that can keep me here is if you give me another job that even if it's not a promotion, it's a parallel job, but at least I develop my skills some more in another area. Um, to keep to keep the jobs, you know, changing around and, and uh, fresh for people. And these are the kind of, some of the things that I think are really important to keep uh, people engaged uh, in the era that we're in. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And one thing that we talk a lot about here at Forgent is is that this idea of employee engagement, right? How do we engage our employees? And by the way, that, that term has been so overused and it's yes, of course. Hard, hard to understand. And so I, I, I personally believe that we will be evolving away from that term here very shortly into something that might be more uh, capturing of the entire employee experience. But, but let's just look at it as what it is today. There are employee, employee engagement platforms out there based on all of the problems that you might experience in engagement. For instance, re retention is, is a struggle for this organization. Turnover is high, and so what do we do? And there are organizations that pop up that say, hey, well, you need to reward your people. So a rewards and recognition platform is put in place, or there, there are certain individuals that say, well, we need to ask our people more and so they uh, start tracking employee engagement and administering surveys. Or there's a, a, yeah, another organization that says, well, our leaders just aren't 
good at being leaders. So let's offer some leadership development. I, I'm curious if you see the future of, of the employee engagement industry as streamlining of this process or something different altogether. Well, I think I tell you, Josh. I think I think what you're talking about is I think one of the real blind spots that we have in organizations, and that is we 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 throw activities at a, at a challenge. You know, we try this new thing, or we'll, now we're going to try a rewards program, or now we're going to try this, or we're going to, you know, do a different way of of um, giving employee feedback or whatever else. And all of those things individually are helpful. I'm not saying that they're not, but what's really important is for organizations to look at this from a culture-based systemic approach. And to, and to not just look at individual activities, but more what's the culture of the organization driving people to do? And this is where we begin to find that it can be, you know, we can really make some sustainable change. So we start by how do we bring people in the organization? So we look at what are our patterns of recruiting, interviewing, hire, hiring people. Then we look at what happens once people get inside of the organization. How do we do our job assignments? How do people get promoted? Um, what are the behaviors that are expected of leaders? What are the benefits and how do they affect different people? You know, all those kinds of things. And then, and then we look outside the organization and say, you know, how are we treating our customers? Uh, how are we marketing and representing ourselves in the marketplace? And, and you know, I mean, those are just a few things. But the point is, now we're looking systemically. And when we do that, we begin to not only have a better um, a chance of building sustainable change in the organization because people get it, the message is getting reinforced in lots of different places. But it also, interestingly enough, gives us the opportunity to see where the breakdowns are occurring. So let's say, for example, you know, I've done a lot of work in the area of diversity and inclusion, as you know. So let's say we're targeting, we want to bring more women into our organization. So we target 40% women to bring into the organization. Now, most organizations, all they do is count the bottom line. How many do we get? But if we were to count the percentage who apply for jobs, the percentage who are offered jobs, the percentage who accept those jobs, and the percentage who are successful after six months, and if we track those numbers, then we can begin to see where the breakdown's happening. So well, we were able to, you know, we were able to, we have 40% apply for jobs and 40% who we offer jobs, and you know, but only 20% accepted those jobs. So, well, now we know there's probably something in the interviewing process that at the very least is not exciting people about working for our organization. It may, in fact, be turning people off without us even realizing it. Or let's say they go through that whole process and the drop-off is when they come into the organization. Then we can look at, you know, how are we bringing people up to speed? How are they getting them in the organization? What kind of mentoring, sponsorship, support are they getting? What kind of on-the-job training are they getting? But the point is, if we start to think systemically like that, we can begin to see where those breakdowns are occurring and have a much greater chance of having a positive impact on them. Yeah, that's interesting. So with, with that context, I, I would love to ask the question around uh, the, the famous phrase that comes up often when people leave their job. It's people, people don't quit their job, they quit their boss. They leave because of yeah. something to do with their direct boss. Uh, that, that seems to be a problem that we don't tap on too often, uh, but it seems like it's a huge issue as far as, um, you know, em employee retention. So, so do you have any advice on, on, on what, do, what do we need to do to fix a problem like that? Yeah, well, first of all, I think you, what you're saying is, has been, you know, found to be true in, in dozens and dozens of studies. I mean, I think that, that a lot of people think money is the thing that keeps people in organizations. And, and of course, if you're offered twice as much as you're making, it's going to be a factor. But for most people, the key factor is, like you said, you know, what's my experience with my immediate supervisor, my boss? And, and, um, and at, at one level, it's trepidatious because if you've got somebody who's not a great boss, you can lose a really talented person. On the other hand, 
um, a good boss uh, because of that can keep people even at a time when other people in the organization aren't happy with it. So I think I think it does put a lot of um, uh, particular influence in the hands of people who are at that mid-management level who have that everyday responsibility for supervision. And 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 I think this is where you know for me you're talking about the question around the word engagement and how it's been sort of overused. That's why I really like this concept of belonging. I mean the distinction I use. I mean my my dear friend Dr. Jeanette Cole likes to say that diversity is inviting people to the dance and inclusion is is actually allowing them to dance. I like to say belonging is when people get to choose some of their own music. Um, so if you're if you're a manager and you're really getting your employees involved in helping you think about the best way to run your department, if if they have input, that doesn't mean by the way that they get everything they want because you're still the leader. You just have to make those determinations. But giving people an opportunity to give you their input, their feedback, uh, their ideas is all part of what keeps what's keep, what keeps people stimulated. People want to feel like they're part of what's happening. And the more they can allow their voice to be part of the thinking that goes to creating the way we do things in our organization, whether it's the cultural feeling that's there or whether how do we get this particular job done, either way, I begin to feel now like I understand that I'm part of something bigger and I contribute at a higher level. And that's where most people want to be. Hmm. Interesting. So do you have any advice for organizations that are, are drinking from the Kool-Aid right now? They're like, yes, you preach, brother. This is exactly what we need to hear. Uh, but, but, but what do we do now? <laughs> do you have any practical advice to help us go there? Yeah, I mean, basically, I like to say that there, I like to say, and I'll do this really quickly because I know we don't have that much time, but there are really nine um, pathways that we're finding that are important. One that I talked about already is taking a culture-based systems approach. Another is to build from the future. All too often, organizations are built on fixing things from the past as opposed to living into a vision. We really want to know where we're going and why we're going there, and that really helps. You know, um, Keeping communication open and transparent is really important because people begin to trust organizations more when they have more open and transparent communication. And trust is to human relationships like energy is to physics and cells are to biology. I mean, it's, it's, it's key. Um, inclusion and enrollment, being sure that there's a space for all different kinds of people, particularly in the world we're in today. And that's, and that's so important. Uh, making sure that it's safe for people to be vulnerable and to really deeply connect with each other because when we have deep connections with the people we work with, that's one of the things we found keeps people around and keeps people engaged as well. I may not care about, you know, ABC Corporation, but I care about the fact that my work affects my friend John and my friend Sally, who I work with. And so that raises my level of participation, you know. Um, keeping ourselves open to dialogue and open-minded thinking so, so that we're challenging old ways of doing things and, and and open to new ideas. Focusing on employee wellness and health. You know, we know more now than ever that, that this plays a huge role in, in, in productivity. And also finding constructive ways to make decisions and to solve problems and, and to teach people ways to do that so that we're not left just kind of running around. And then the final thing is, um, you know, to, to really look at what is our bottom line. You know, for many organizations, the only thing that they look at as a bottom line is money. And so as a result of that, money becomes the only thing that drives motion in the organization. But the best organizations that I'm seeing are organizations that may have a triple or quadruple bottom line. They look at money, yes, and, and that's important a result because unless you're surviving financially you're not going to do anything but also the employee experience the customer experience and the relationship with the organization to the community and even things like sustainability and so when we begin to measure all of those things then we can be sure that our organization is working more holistically wow that is such great advice i, I would love to dig into the nine approaches a little bit more obviously we don't have time today 
on the podcast. Um, but um, definitely the idea of like our bottom line should not just be about the numbers. It should be about our people and the people that we are seeking to serve. And in doing so, we will create an experience for our employees that translates to the customer experience and that ends up, you know, them doing more work, being more productive, which then again, increases the bottom line. So I love the way that you frame it. I love starting with belongingness and trust and inclusion. I think you are right on board. So thank you so much for sharing your insights. Uh, listeners, you can get his book, Our Search for Belonging, it, at Amazon. It's a, a, a read that we are super excited to jump into. Uh, what's the best way to keep in touch with you, Howard? Uh, people can reach me at uh, howardjross.com or uh, my email, if you want to reach out to me directly, is howard at udarta.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show today, and we look forward to future conversations.